Hebrews 13. We're actually going to read verses 22 and 23, and we'll I'll pray again, and then we will we will go ahead and 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 talk for just a few minutes. In verses 22 and 23, at the very end of Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, I "Appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that a brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you." If he comes soon, let's pray. Father, I adore you and thank you. Father, I ask you, please, God, to bless um, our meeting tonight. Father, God, bless me to teach with integrity and power and passion. Father, God, give me the thunder and lightning that only you can. Father, God, I pray, Father, God, also give me a simplicity that blesses me to, to speak directly to the hearts of men and women. Father, God, not with anything that is of me, but is of you, Father, God, but is expressed in a language, Father, God, that everyone can get. I pray, God, that I would not be obtuse. I would not be too... Uh, disorganized or disorderly, Father God, but that I have a an ordered and a non-chaotic heart and a clear mind right now that I'm ready to do, God, what you sent me to do. I pray, God, now for not only our meeting, but the meeting in the back with the children, the meeting down in the park, Lord, with, the, with, our, with our student ministry, Father God, I pray that everybody, God, is being fed tonight that, uh, that eternal bread, Father. I love you, Lord, and I thank you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, I'm going to say this, and this is kind of the be the bulk of what we talk about tonight. I was still kind of overcome with that turn of phrase that I, I quote kind of strangely in my notes, and that is bear with exhortation, because he actually says, bear with my word of exhortation. It's precisely what Paul says, but that I think is the clincher, to be honest with you. It's one of those turns of phrase and one of those ideas or themes within the scriptures that I think has really long legs within the, within the, uh, within not the world, but specifically within the church. And what I mean is this, is that bearing with exhortation is a very direct measure of our ability to be preached to. And I think that's the most important thing the church has. If the church can be preached to, the church can grow, uh, fulfill its mandate, um, uh, be a, be a destiny-minded body of believers. If the church can't be preached to, the church simply cannot grow. It may grow, Jan, numerically. It may grow biologically or it may grow through people coming in. All those things. But we know church growth is a weird creature and we don't really need to be very... Uh, don't need to be too worried about that, to be honest with you. Numbers aren't what are really our mandate. Our mandate is, as Francis uh, Chan said, our mandate isn't to build a big church. Our mandate is to preach the gospel. If we preach the gospel directly from the scriptures, then we don't really have to worry about all those esoteric things. Like I said, there are people going places that don't know why they go there. And there are people who don't go places who aren't going there for every wrong reason you can possibly have. As far as I can tell, just in my own experience, um, you can shrink a church by preaching the truth to it. By preaching the truth. Because the fact of the matter is, this is the, this is the standard that I want to I focus on. And this is the issue. The issue is, is that a significant portion of the church simply cannot bear with exhortation. They can't be preached to. They won't be preached to. They don't want to be told how to be married. They don't want to be told how to raise their kids. They don't want to be told how to live their lives. They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it. You may have got anybody like that in your life? It's a very frustrating thing, isn't it? When you know they're doing wrong, but they just simply will not listen to you. 
Now you know what it's like to be a preacher in a church that will not bear with exhortation. They know better than the preacher. I guess the, what I'm saying is something really weird. I know I'm an old preacher now, kind of an old preacher, but I guess because I've been here a long time, I've got the gray hair and the bald head and the wrinkles and the bags and all the stuff that goes with it. You start to get a little bit of respect the uglier you get, you know what I'm talking about? Um, is that a 21-year-old guy ought to be able to pastor a church of senior adults if he preaches the gospel. You understand what I mean? I'm not going to say uh, Miss Pansy is going to be easy. And I'm not going to say they're not going to look at him as their grandson, because they are. In the very way, same way a lot of you look at me as your, as your son, because you have children my age. I totally understand that. And I actually, to be honest with you, it, it feels good most of the time. It feels really good being talked about and treated that way. But sometimes, I know this is the thing that gets me. I, please don't take this the wrong way because I'm not pointing at anybody about this. Guys, there's an, there used to be an idea toward the pastorate from their churches that, that implied that you were to respect that position. And I'm not sure it exists anymore in the church of the, of the late teens, late 20 teens. I'm just not sure it is. I think when we started calling our preacher by his first name and not by brother so-and-so or pastor so-and-so, and let's just be honest, most churches do that. Most churches kind of, Katie, they covet that. They want that. They want to feel that he's right there with them. I want to feel, as your pastor, that I'm right there with you. That I'm right there with you. And I've never been fussy about being called brother so-and-so. I don't really care, to be honest with you. But I do think there's something endemic of the church of the late 20 teens to where that old idea that of respect just simply has died over the years. It's not there anymore. And that, that it really needs to be. Because it is not about the man. It's about our ability as a people to bear with exhortation. Our ability as a people to be preached to. Our ability as a people to be told that we're wrong by a 21-year-old. Not because he gets to tell you what to do, but because the Bible says you're wrong. And if the Bible says you're wrong, you are wrong indeed, right? As much as if the Bible frees me, I'm free indeed. If the truth frees me, I'm free indeed. If the truth condemns me, I am indeed wrong. So there's the idea, and this time I'm going to flesh it out very, very quickly. It's not going to take very long, I don't imagine. Um, this is the idea. Spurgeon said this. He said, the gospel is preached in the ears of all men. It only comes with power to some. Now, um, he's speaking very directly, and I believe exceedingly biblically, because he's Spurgeon. He, he just tended to do that was that there are going to be people within your churches that will hear and there just simply is, it's the same gospel and it's preached with the same fervency and with the same theological accuracy and the same orthodoxy, but yet it does, it, it'll save this man and it doesn't save this man because this man was able to hear with power and that man just never heard with power. 
All right. We don't always understand the mechanism of it, but it's very clear that the very same gospel can be preached over two men and one will be saved and one is not. Okay. We don't always, the Bible's not always incredibly clear about it. Well, it is incredibly clear about the mechanism, but it's complicated. Let's put it that way. It only comes with power to some. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be converter of souls. That is what drew me that quote. I love the quote. Is the idea that I can come in on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night and just be a hot mess sometimes. I know. Y'all hear it all the time. You think, man, this guy's got to get his act together. I get it. I say it to myself more than you know. Man, you've got to get your act together. You just don't know how much I say that to myself. I was talking to Brian tonight in our extended session. We were just talking and kind of sharing of our hearts. I said that one of those things that's always dogged me has been that, you know, those, those hurts from childhood. Do you know what I mean? I, you know, when you're always the last one picked, you can very easily de- develop a mindset that is, you know, they don't really want you. Do you know what I mean by that? And don't you think that you can't think five-year-old stuff when you're 50? Because you sure enough can. Because you sure enough can. And so it's kind of, you know, been there with me as that constant companion was that, you know, a notion of being a failure. You know, then struggle some or have problems or struggle in your church and then it just feels like it's, it's, it's you know, there. there. There's the failure. But one of those, this quote gives me hope because I realize that when I'm, Miss Jane, I'm the hot mess and I know I need to get my act together, it really has no bearing on the power of the gospel. Because the opposite of that, Mama Jenny, is that if I get it right, people have to be saved because I am a saver of men in my preaching. That is a poisonous doctrine for the church. Poisonous doctrine. That's why so many churches completely lose their perspective on the gospel and follow men into doing terrible things. Because they decide that it's up to the ability of the pastor. I'm going to tell you the greatest preacher in the world can preach to a man whose heart is dead and it will never be alive. Because eloquence doesn't change things. Otherwise, eloquence preacher, otherwise men would be converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise it would consist of the wisdom of men. Another one of those things I always beat myself up about, the idea that, you know what, guys, I, I don't have all the right degrees. I'm self-taught. You know, and, and you, you've had men before here with every degree you could have. And I don't have any of that. I don't have any of that. And so, so why would anybody listen to me if, if, they, if I don't have the, 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 the bona fides, if I don't have the credentials that I need? And, and, and wisdom says it, it's not a matter of the work of the wisdom of men. We might preach till our tongues rotted, he said, till we should exhaust our lungs and die, but never so would be converted unless there were mysterious power going with it. The Holy Ghost changing the will of man. That in the end, I am a beggar at the throne of 
of the risen Savior and for the power of the Holy Spirit as much as any other man. And if I had every advanced degree in the world, it would not make any difference. He says, oh, sirs, we might as well preach to stone walls as preach to humanity unless the Holy Ghost be with the Word. So to give it power to convert souls. Now, I always quote Spurgeon about that, partly because yeah, he, he had some degrees and things like that, but the reality was we may not have ever seen a a sort of modern era preacher with his brilliance. I, t- I probably told you those things. Spurgeon read six hard books of theology every single week. <coughs> hard books. Spurgeon wrote maybe a hundred letters a week. Spurgeon didn't just preach twice on Sundays, but counseled all day on Monday from what he preached to on Sunday. Spurgeon had this unique ability. And I, I, you think of things, but I've probably told you this before, it's just, it's, to me it's still fantastic. Uh, Lucas Spurgeon could preach and pray for people in the back of his mind while he preached. So he's preaching these unbelievably complicated and eloquent sermons that we now study in preacher schools. And in the back of his mind, he's not even really concentrating because he's praying for the people he sees. If there was a man the modern world has created, gifted for preaching the gospel, it's Charles Spurgeon. And he says right here, none of that stuff matters if the Holy Spirit doesn't move. It's all wasted. So a farmer who's, who, who barely can read and barely knows one verse can be just as powerful in the pulpit as a guy like that who could do everything. Why? Because it's up to the Holy Spirit. So that, that gives me hope. But then there's something a little bit deeper. This is my what I have to say in response to that and with some Bible to go with it. He said, I said this, the very act of preaching and hearing is an exercise in the sovereignty of God. So when we come in here and we do this, guys, when we come in here and I preach, I know I'm doing a crummy job tonight. I don't apologize. I just simply do the best I can with the materials God has given me. And, and sometimes they're kind of slim, to be honest with you. But here's the thing, is that when we come in here, when I preach and you listen, that is a... That is a direct reflection or direct manifestation of the very sovereignty of God. Because you have no ability to hear save the the fact that God has given you that ability. If you can come in here and listen to the gospel and understand it and respond to it, that is because God did something. It's because God, God has enabled you to do what the lost man cannot. As he said, you know, you can be preaching to bricks... Unless the Holy Spirit acts, it is, they're just as likely to, to respond as men will. Those who cannot hear have no hope of comprehending the divine message. People who cannot hear, literally who have not been enabled by God to hear, will never hear. They have no hope of hearing it. At the same time, now I think this is the, what's intended for you tonight. So listen, this is my point to your heart. And that is, those who can have, who can hear, have no choice but to tremble at its power. Which means, because God has turned your heart on, do not try to turn your heart off. If there's one problem with the fact that churches will not bear with exhortation, is that churches are filled with people who cannot help but bear with exhortation. If they are not bearing with exhortation, if they're not listening and submitting and hearing the Word of God when it's preached, they're doing what is not natural for them. Either you are lost and you refuse to hear, or, and you cannot hear, or you are stubborn and wicked and refuse to hear. There, are, there is no middle ground there. Now, I've said this, I know it's self-serving, and I apologize for being self-serving, but I, I still believe it is the right thing to say. And that is, 
Pray for your preachers, me and Brian and Kyle. Pray for us. Submit to what God has sent us to say, even if it's long, even if it's hard, even if you don't quite understand it. Do all those things and see what God will do through our ministry. See what God will do through a preaching ministry when everybody comes wanting to hear. Because I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure any of us has ever preached in a church where everybody came wanting to hear. I'm not sure we've ever experienced that. You want, we always want revival to break out. What we really want is, 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 is the, the, the end product of revival to precede all the foundational work of revival. We want to see a bunch of people get saved and a bunch of lives really be molded into the image of God. We want to see that, but we don't want to see any of that other stuff that has to come before it. You want to see revival break out in your church? Come as a people prepared and ready and hungry to hear the word and see what happens. You know why most of the time we can't, we struggle up here? You want to know the truth? The truth is because we feel powerless. And we feel powerless because we understand there's no anticipation. We'll, under, we'll anticipate everything in the world. We'll anticipate a worship service. We'll anticipate all these things. But how often do we anticipate sermons? My gosh, God's going to do something. Through that man up there. I know he's weak and I know he's small. I know his voice won't carry and I know he's nothing like I'd ever pick for a preacher. But what'll happen if I anticipate the word coming from him and it being a word from God? What happens if I anticipate that? I'm not saying that we get to say anything that is not validated by the scriptures, that it doesn't can't be tested, that you don't need to be Bereans. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just saying what happens if if people who, who love their pastor and trust their pastor are absolutely willing to come in and listen to their pastor. What happens if you love your pastor and trust your pastor and value your pastor and listen to your pastor and you can honestly go out to people and say, but wait a second, you'll hear things here you won't hear anyplace else. It's not come in because we're nice or come in because they'll make you welcome or come in because you're going to like that or come in because you need to go, you need to take your family to church. But what if you honestly say, look, you won't hear this anywhere else? What if you can honestly say that? I'll be honest with you. I think in a lot of churches, they can't honestly say that about their pastor. You know why? Because they can't remember one sermon. They're not really sure what he says. Because there are a lot of people in there that aren't even listening. Look, Paul wrote this. Now, this is, this is some, some validation. Just listen for just a couple more minutes. Paul said in Colossians 1, 28-29, he said, Him we proclaim, the Him is Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So now we've got something going on there that is really, uh, guys, at the heart and soul of preaching. Preaching is what? Warning? Warning. I'm warning people. I want people to know that hell is real and hell is hot and that God judges now, I know everybody doesn't like to hear that. Everybody says, oh, I talk about going to hell. But the reality is, if we really believe people are going to hell, you would demand I talked about hell every day. It is a measure of how little the church really believes in hell that they do not clamor for preaching on hell every single sermon. Because if we really believe those people around us were going to hell like they're going to hell, we would be desperate. But the reality is we're not very desperate because we don't really believe it. Now, I know we're saying we do, and intellectually we do, but we haven't embraced the idea that we're looking at people around us that are going to burn one of these days. So we're warning people, but we're also teaching everyone with all wisdom. So we're warning, but we're also teaching. So, so Ms. Jan, that we don't just come in and warn the lost that, that, that hell is real, but that, but, 
uh, redemption and justification and salvation through Jesus Christ is available through the gospel and the blood. We don't just say those things. Those things are, are real and, and powerful and need to be said. But Mike, we're also going to turn right around and we're going to say what? We're going to say, hey, look, let me sh- God shows you how to live a life that brings Him glory. So there's warning for the lost because they need it because they've got to be saved. But at the same time, absolutely, there is instruction for the found. So that we can live lives that bring ultimate glory to God. Why? Because as we've said many, many times, I think Jeremiah said, David Jeremiah said it first, not Jeremiah, but David Jeremiah said it first. He said that we are the only Jesus a lot of people ever get to see. And if the Jesus that my people get to see is a pretty cruddy Jesus, how are they ever going to believe in him? The only example of the gospel in a life is me and it's bad. They're never going to, they're never going to have enough impetus to believe. So, we do that, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The final goal is exactly what we're talking about tonight. You know what I, how I think I could define mature in Christ right now? Bearing with exhortation. You know what a mature person in Christ is? It's somebody who can come in and listen to the, the preached word and respond to the preached word rightly. Somebody that you, to be honest with you, you can tell they're wrong from the, that you can tell them you're wrong, that they are wrong from the pulpit, and there's not offense caused. But there's, a, there's a, a unique and God-centered desire to see change in their own life. They've never gotten too old to be told that God's right and they're wrong. To be honest with you, a lot of the church gets way too old, way too fast. That's why we want encouragement. I want an encouraging sermon. Hmm. Most people want to be encouraged to continue doing exactly what they're doing. They want validation and affirmation. Not real biblical encouragement. Because biblical encouragement is going to tell me I'm wrong. And that's encouraging according to the Bible. It's encouraging me to change. So so we have that. Everyone matures what God wants. And that is, I believe, that is being able to be preached to. 29, for this toil, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And I think that's what's amazing. That's what I need to, maybe not back off from my statements, but I need, to, I need to qualify those statements. I shouldn't be, Brother Mike, very shocked when it's hard to preach to the church, when it's hard to minister to the church. Do you know why? What does is, what is the right of Hebrews say? For this I toil. We talked about this tonight in the kitchen, didn't we? Um, you know what we're going to do in the, in the eternal state of man? I mean, new heavens, new earth, where you've been in a resurrected body and you live the rest of, of all eternity healthy and young and beautiful and all those things I've never really been are all going to be maximized. I'm going to understand what it means to never suffer. I'm going to work. Now and you say, oh, no, not work. Don't freak out because what we think of work is really toil. Right? You work and you work and you work and you just don't have enough. As I point out, toil is best seen in the garden. Because you can do everything right one year and it makes nothing. You can do everything wrong the next year and it makes too much and you can't give it away. That's toil. That's toil. You work and slave and labor and it doesn't pay off. That's toil. Everything we do in this world because of the fall is scarred by that idea of toil. It's never going to work out. You can never make enough. You can never save enough. You can never manage well enough. It always goes bad. It's always hard. Why? Because it's scarred by toil. So, so Miss Diane, I shouldn't be freak out over this because 
preaching is scarred by the fall too, and therefore it's reduced to exactly what he says. For this I toil. Struggling. Toil and struggling, back to back, those two words. Everything that defines the world that we live in. Everything that defines your job or your family or even your retirement. Toil and struggle. Well, this is the way it is. So I shouldn't be shocked. shouldn't be shocked. It shouldn't get me down. It shouldn't cause me frustration. Because I understand that for the writer of Hebrews, his labor in the church was toil. Toil. So I stand corrected. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. But now there's the antidote to my toil and your toil. There is for the preached word and the heard word, there's the antidote. Because when we come in here honestly, prayerfully, and we struggle together in toil, I'm toiling to try to preach because I'm just not good at it. Because I'm just not good at it. You're toiling to listen because everything in the world went wrong in your life today. And you and it's not that you're being selfish. It's that thing, how hard is it when things happen you just can't get over? Do you know what I mean by that? Anybody picking it up? There's a big difference. Mr. Lorris, there's a big difference to sitting there kind of caught up in selfishness and legitimately having something happen that you just can't get over. The hurt's too deep or the dis- disappointment's too great or the gr- regret's too monumental. So you're toiling the way I'm toiling, but we toil how? Struggling with all His energy that He he powerfully works within me. So we don't come in, Lucas, and toil just under our ability. Because my ability to preach is always going to be not enough. And your ability to listen, as smart as yours, is not going to be enough. Things can get in the way, can't they? And they can stack up. They can be a veneer on our lives that is so thick that, that even when you want to, the human voice just can't penetrate. But we're not left to our ability. Jan's not left to her ability to listen. And Buddy's not left to his ability to listen. Because we struggle, I preach, you listen, how? With all His energy. So what empowers what we do tonight is not my ability, but God's ability. What empowers what you hear tonight is not your ability, but God's ability. If it does not do what it's supposed to do, it's not just because I fail or you fail, but we have somehow managed to fail God who energizes the entire thing. Because God has invested Himself. What do we, what do they, I heard, heard it called, in a, uh, actually read it called in an article, sweat equity. You know what that is? You, you sweated for it. You have invested in it with your effort. So God has come here and invested in its sweat equity with His power that this would be successful. And you know what? He has invested a lot in a Sunday morning service. And if we come in and we go through the motions, guess whose fault it is? It's ours. Because God's invested it. God has invested sweat equity, power in what we do. Now, I've told you, told you what I absolutely biblically believe to be true. I've gone through it with you in the Scriptures. And all I can say is this, is what will you do with it? If you sat here and you've heard it, what will you do with it? Because I tell you what, we nod our way through a lot of sermons. And sometimes, you know what, you're just nodding to be encouraging. Sometimes you're just nodding to make sure that the guy preaching doesn't quit because he looks like he's about to lose it. But sometimes I think we nod our way through sermons that we know are absolutely right, but the nod is a, is a clear intention of doing nothing with it. 
Now, I used to say this when I was a first a young preacher, and I think I'm right about this, was that my goal was always to make people start amening than make them stop. Because when you, when you got their mouths open, you, you, you had kind of engaged them, and then when they quit, you had either humbled them or you shocked them. They got to that point where they were like, well, what does this really mean? Because sometimes we amen things we don't intend to, to ever carry out, right? Sometimes we amen things we don't intend to ever follow. Sometimes we nod along with things, to be honest with you folks, that, that we ought to re- be taken seriously. So what will you do with what we've heard tonight? What will you invest? What will your sweat equity be every time we come together? Let's pray. Father God, I love you and I thank you and I praise you and as you please God to bless us. God, I know this was a mess, Father God, but I pray God that you have sorted it out. I pray God that your power was, was at work in here, Father God, and that your energies were here, Father, and that I'm not preaching alone or on the, some spit of land, Father God, where I'm just buffeted by the storm, Father, where my voice, God, is just drowned out by the crashing of the waves. But I pray, Father God, that you, God, are the energy and the, the power behind everything that I do, Father, not because I need to be validated. If I'm wrong, God... Correct me, crush me, Father God. If we hear wrong, correct us, crush us. Father God, but at the same time, Father God, if we will just submit, if I will submit to you and they will submit to what they hear, Father God, I know, God, you will do mighty, powerful things. And I pray for that now, Father. Not that we labor as if we're soon to be washed away, Father, but that we realize that we labor, God, literally in the hand of the Master. And that nothing transpires here, Father, that you do not allow. And that no matter how discouraged we might be, Father God, we have no right to be discouraged. Because, Father God, your power is at work in this room tonight. That is your promise, Father God. But I understand, Father God, it is also a grave responsibility. That that I have no right, Father God, to come in here and not be absolutely aflame with the Scriptures. And, Father God, our people have no right to come together, Father God, not absolutely craving the Word. Please, God, bless us now. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.